Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and it's the Centered from Reality podcast. It is, I want to say, about 50 degrees out here. Beautiful Thursday afternoon. I hope your day's treating you well. Not too much to complain about at this moment, looking outside, sunshine, blue clouds. Hey, or blue sky clouds, you know. Can't really complain too much, but anyways, I was going to talk about it yesterday, but we got a little short on time. Today, I just wanted to talk about the political turmoil that is tearing Peru apart. I want to talk about how it seems like the democratic social contract has completely been obliterated in Peru and why I think it's actually a big issue for democracies around the world because democracies require the losers to accept defeat. And we're seeing time and time again that across the world, the losers are not accepting defeat and instead it is stolen or it is fraudulent, or it's illegitimate, whatever other adjective you want to use. But either way, it seems like we're seeing, I don't even want to call it a democratic backslide. Instead, we're seeing something new, in my opinion. But I'll get to that in a bit, because Peru is a shit show. I mean, there's no way to sugarcoat it. It's chaotic, it's disastrous, people are dying, the government's clamping down, conspiracies are spreading, and there's talks of some sort of civil conflict on the horizon. So nothing good in Peru at this time. But first, I've been tuning in this morning to the Twitter hearings that the Republicans in the House are conducting. And I'm not going to waste too much time going into it, but I must just say that the Republicans are really bad at holding hearings. They also don't seem to understand what free speech means. And they also don't seem to understand that Twitter is just kind of a mess and it's a mess to both sides. The first thing is that Time and time again, the First Amendment involves the government. The government cannot limit free speech, right? Last time I I checked, Twitter is not the government. Twitter is a private company. Twitter can have policies. Now, I don't agree with some of Twitter's like three strikes and you're out policies involving offensive language. I think they should let it all fly, to be completely honest. But Twitter is not the government. It's a private organization. And time and time again, Marjorie Taylor Greene... For example, criticizing Twitter, saying that her First Amendment rights were taken away after she questioned, excuse me, after she questioned Ivermectin, after she questioned the election. All things that Twitter has the right to limit. I don't actually agree. I think Marjorie Taylor Greene should have been kept on Twitter, to be completely honest. But, and it's a big but, Twitter has the right to do it. And so every time Republicans say Twitter's violating the First Amendment, they don't get it. The First Amendment's about the government. Second thing, they're really bad at this because they're trying to make it sound like conservatives are the ones who are being picked on. For example, they're always talking about Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, President Trump. It's all one-sided. Oh, they're being taken off Twitter. It's completely one-sided. It's not completely true because then you have like the libs of TikTok, which put out these conspiracies about a hospital in Boston that was basically doing uh, gender realignment surgeries, and there were threats against them. And one could argue that libs, that the libs of TikTok Twitter was actually maybe inciting violence. And it's still on there, and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez actually brought that up today. And as I've said, I still don't agree with her politics, but she's been really great at calling out the hypocrisy. She just mentioned that if this is all one-sided targeting conservatives on Twitter, then how come the libs of TikTok was never really targeted in the same way? Then we also have to talk about the fact that <laughs> there was the Chrissy Teigen stuff where I guess Chris, <laughs> I, I, I forget exactly what she said. Hold on. Let's, let's see what Christy, Chrissy Teigen said. That's right. I, I should have remembered this. 
she called Trump a pussy-ass bitch. And I'm using the words because that's what they used in the hearing today in Congress. But basically, the reason I bring this up is because Tegan, John Legend's wife, model, kind of a kook in my opinion, she, she tweeted, Trump is a pussy-ass bitch. And I guess the Trump administration contacted Twitter and tried to get it taken off. And the point here is that Trump had access to Twitter. His administration could contact Twitter. Joe Biden's administration has contacted Twitter over the Alex Berenson stuff involving vaccine misinformation. And so my thing with Twitter is that it's kind of just poorly run and has some poor understandings of free speech, but it's not like it's a right or a left thing. The Biden administration should not have taken Alex Berenson off. The White House should not have coordinated with Twitter to get a guy off who is a journalist. And at the same time, the Trump administration shouldn't have pressured Twitter to, you know, take Chrissy Teigen off for calling him a pussy ass bitch. But that's that's the world we're in. And these hearings to me just show there's so many other things we could be focusing on right now instead of hearing like Congressman Comer, uh, you know, try to understand Twitter or Lauren, Lauren Bobert, you know, freak out at the people and act like she's just this unhinged nutbag. But that's where we're at. And this is going to be the theater that we're going to see for the next uh, next couple years. And the thing is, is that I think a lot of people voted in these Marjorie Taylor Greens and these Lauren Boberts, etc., because in a sense, they want them to go to Washington to do this. They don't want policies. They want hearings and culture war issues. Before, uh, before I get into Peru, I also was just thinking about Sarah Huckabee Sanders a little bit more after, you know, I, I talked about the State of the Union yesterday, or as I called it, the State of Disunion yesterday. And, oh my God, I was thinking about this. There's the part in, in her reaction where she talks about how the, how the Democrats started this culture war, and now they're forcing their false flags and false idols. I'm, I, don't, I don't think she said that directly, but something to the effect of that. Democrats are enforcing flags and false idols on average Republicans. And I was thinking about that because I think it was Tom Nichols, a Naval War College a writer for The Atlantic, kind of a neoconservative. He was like, I don't know about you guys, but it's kind of funny that Sarah Huckabee Sanders brings that up because on January 6th, wasn't it the Trumpers storming the Capitol that had MAGA flags and Confederate flags pictures of Trump. CPAC also had that golden Trump statue. So is it the Democrats with false idols and false flags? Or is it the Republicans that stormed the Capitol, or Capitol sorry, that had flags of allegiance to Trump, not the country? And I was really thinking about that. And I'm like, I don't know what the hell Sarah Huckabee Sanders is even talking about anymore. You know, there was a time where I think a lot of people thought she was going to be kind of a rising star. Back when she was Trump's press secretary. She lied a lot, but she was good at the job. Two days ago, there was just a darkness to her that was kind of creepy. And, you know, Biden's State of the Union, he actually talked about what he wants to do for middle America, white America as well, like a lot of places where there's a lot of Trump supporters. But Huckabee Sanders and the Republicans have pretty much just said, we don't like the coastal elites. They're not us. Democrats are not us. And it's a very alienating speech. And Huckabee Sanders went into that too. And you know, I don't think anyone should just keep calling each other the crazies and the normies. And Governor Sununu of New Hampshire brought that up today. He's like, the Republicans looked like the bad ones in this situation. And he's like, I like Huckabee Sanders, but she was just very divisive and made this worse. And just so you all remember, Sununu is the Republican governor of New Hampshire. So this is not some Democrats saying this, but I just find the divisiveness insane. And it seems like they're just banking on winning over this small percentage of Americans and not expanding. And in the long term, that's not a great strategy to keep winning. It might work in this one because 
Biden's approval is not great. No one wants him to run again. And Trump is kind of vindicated with the whole documents thing. But down the road, this kind of divisiveness and this just pure projection is, I don't think, going to be very sustainable. So we'll have to see. But I was just thinking so much about Huckabee Sanders' speech and how people think she's this rising star. And I'm like, no, she's just the Nepo baby. She's just the Nepo baby who kind of has a very dark and divisive view of what America is. But hey, at least she banned CRT in elementary schools, so we're all good. Anyways, uh, for the rest of this, I just wanted to talk about Peru for a little bit. And I'm going to start with a little section from The Economist from last week because I think it's a good highlight of how badly things have gone. So it's a little paragraph. I'm going to read it. Bear with me. It says here in quotes, For the past few weeks, the cry of Dina Assassinina, Dina Assassinina, have rung out across the streets of several of Peru's biggest towns and cities. It is unfortunate for the country's president that her first name rhymes with the Spanish word for murderer. Dina Boluarte is the legal constitutional head of state. But since she took over on December 7th, at least 60 people have died during protests, 46 of them civilians in clashes with the security forces. Her name has become toxic, and for many Peruvians, excuse me, her government has lost any legitimacy. And we've talked about this before, where the former president, Castillo, was a, or is, a rural school teacher, far left from everything I know, and he really appeals to the Andean, indigenous, impoverished communities of Peru, especially in the Altipano and in the Andy Mountains, and basically during his 16 months in power, he struggled to get anything done, done, and he failed to bring in talented people around him. He had like five different cabinets, 80 ministers, people were just kind of going in and out because they were all unqualified. They tried to impeach him a bunch, and they finally were actually able to get rid of him when he basically <laughs> tried to get rid of the Constitution and seize power. And he wanted to basically put Peru back into a 1990s uh, Fujimoto type of um, autocracy. And it failed. But the problem here is that even though he failed to reorganize the country and create a new constitution and pretty much just seize power for good. He was really bad at it, and now he's in jail where all the other Peruvian presidents over the last decade are because, remember, there's like, I think Peru's had six presidents in only a couple years. And so that gets us to where we're at now, though, because it is really not great. And Peru is suffering just an explosion of street conflict, kind of like Chile in 2019 and even Colombia in 2021. But this is getting much worse because it's just showing some divisions and stratifications and pain in society there. And these have been much more violent than in Chile and Colombia. And there's also this racial edge to it, which I think is important to note. Because the indigenous population, which are a lot of Incans as well as Aymaras and others, have long been disadvantaged and have been at the forefront of these protests. And they are really strident supporters of the former president Castillo. And really what at stake is, what is at stake here is really if democracy can work. Um, the, the society is so polarized and it seems like you have about, you have, you have a majority of Peru not thinking that the current president is actually legitimate. And then you also have almost a majority that think Castillo is the rightful president, even though he's not and he wanted to get rid of democracy. So to, to even paint this further, you have highways, especially in the highlands that are blocked. The tourist railway to the Incan uh, citadel, Machu Picchu, is still closed. There's reports of 
protesters intimidating and threatening travelers. That's why the State Department, for example, says just don't go to Peru right now. But pretty much the country's under kind of a shutdown right now, and everything's kind of frozen still. Um, some of the first deaths in Lima from protesters have happened recently. It's pretty ghostly from what I've heard. I think martial law is in place, and there's curfews, and there's protective fencing surrounding the capital. No tourist shops are closed, and almost every evening, from, what, from all the reports I have seen, demonstrators are trying to get to the congressional building. And what they would do when they get there was kind of troubling. And... Basically, Castillo, it's been about two months since all this transpired. And he has, he's kind of done what all the other autocrats we've seen around the world, including like Bolsonaro and Trump, just to name a few, have done, is that he's created this alternative universe, this alternative narrative in which he is, he is a victim. He didn't try to do the coup. He was set up and he was thrown out and his legitimate power was taken from him. And he's now this giant martyr and this victim to a lot of Peru's more disadvantaged indigenous people. And he's retained, according to The Economist, the support of about 30% of Peruvians. And The Economist also notes here in quotes, according to Alfredo Torres, a pollster, around half of Peru's people and two-thirds in the Andes do believe his false claim of victimhood. And they think that, uh, they think that Dina Boluarte is an usurper who is allied with the right wing. So again, then we have kind of this clash between the right and the left. Not, not, not good at all. Um, because like I kind of alluded to at the beginning of the show, democracy only works if people who didn't win still think the other side is legitimate. Of course, this is more complicated because Bolo Arte was not elected. She was the vice president and just took power. Now, from everything I've read... Scholars of Peruvia's or Peru's system do think that she's legitimate and she is the rightful president. But again, we have these breaking down of narratives that are going to make it really difficult to know what is particularly happening here. And we are seeing this breakdown around the world where the losers can't admit they lost. So they create these alternative narratives of victimhood. They rally their supporters. And you really can't have a successful country or a successful system when this is what happens. And Again, I, I think this whole conflict as well shows just class and social stratification in Peruvian society because, I mean, I, I covered this. I, I encourage you guys to go back to my December, I think, 9th or 10th episode on this where I talked basically just about how Peru's pretty much had just corrupt politics over and over again for the last couple decades. They finally got out of authoritarian rule in the 90s. But then politics has not really worked. There's been a lot of corruption scandals. They were one of the countries involved in the Lavo Gato uh, or Lavo Jato scandal. Uh, and just generally speaking, the people have not done well in Peru. They don't feel like they've been taken care of. So, of course, if you have this guy like Castillo, even if he's incompetent, it's going to work out. And so, yeah, these protests just really express structural fatigue with politics and the state just hasn't actually responded to what the people want, and a lot of people are angry. And like I've said as well, the pandemic has also heightened economic stress among poor Peruvians. Just to put some numbers on that, the poverty rate rose to 30% in 2020 and was 26% uh, in 2021. I haven't seen the numbers for 2022 yet, but 
one would have to assume is probably about one in four still, which is an understandable reason why people are kind of willing to throw out maybe fairness for answers. And I think things are going to get worse as well because I don't think the protesters are going to accept anything other than Dina Boluarte's resignation. And then they're going to have to hold elections. But what do you do when you hold elections in a place where no one agrees on how to run them? Then you also have Castillo's supporters wanting to basically write a new constitution. And I've done episodes in the past about that where I'm never for rewriting a constitution unless it's necessary and you agree on what you want to accomplish. But when you have a society that that is actually threatening civil war and breakdown, I don't think a constitution can even be written where everyone is appeased and everyone agrees on what they want out of it. So you hold elections, but, you know, half the country wants a new constitution or doesn't agree, like, agree that the current system is working. How does that exactly work? I am not even going to pretend to know, but I just couldn't imagine it ends well. Then there's also clashing factions involved as well. So you have the Marxist left, which is kind of Castillo's side, which is mainly backed by the indigenous groups of Peru, but also are backed by Venezuela and Cuba. So now you could imagine the right is going to pick up on the propaganda saying, oh, look, look who's uh, backing us here, Venezuela and Cuba. Look at this. See, the extremists are in. And then you have the right, which will probably take advantage of the Boluarte side, even though she's really not an extreme right-wing figure by any means, but that's how these things happen. The vacuum makes this occur. And then also you have the Aymara population, which is another indigenous group, which is in the Puno, Lake Titicaca area, and they share the border with Bolivia. And so there's also Bolivian influence from a kind of a left-wing side as well. So you have a lot of factors. And what's interesting here to me is that I don't know if you would see like an actual like broke like like civil conflict come out of it, but you might see a breakdown of allegiance or the breakdown of what you see is actually Peru, because a lot of the coastal areas like Lima are just culturally so different from like the highlands where you have a lot of the Andean peoples and then the Aymara people in the Bolivian border side. So, again, I think the only answer to this are elections of some form. How that happens, I don't know, because they, they're, talk, they're probably talking about later in 2023. So for now, does the government come down with an iron fist? I, I won't even pretend to, to predict that, but it does look like things are getting worse before they get better. So a little bit shorter episode today, but I just wanted to dive into some updates on that because from everything I'm seeing, nothing is going too well in Peru. So anyways, uh, have a great Thursday. I'll be back, and you can find me, as always, on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, whatever else there is. Take care.